Media Law Podcast newscast, Colette, Tom and Paul here today to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have a Netflix defamation case, updates on Julian Assange, an injunction claim against the BBC and surveillance concerns around the Beijing Winter Olympics. But first, I want to discuss the government's support of the No Place to Hide campaign. This is a new campaign that's just received the government backing that puts pressure on social media companies to not introduce end-to-end encryption. The campaign says that social media companies are willingly blindfolding themselves to child sexual abuse if they implement end-to-end encryption for private messaging. The campaign was launched by abuse survivors and child safety campaigners who warn that strongly encrypted messaging prevents law enforcement and tech platforms from providing the services that are needed to combat child abuse. According to a 2020 report from the US National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Meta, the owner of Facebook, has accounted for 20.3 million referrals of child sexual abuse material, which is 94% of the total of reported material in 2020. According to this report, 70% of referrals from Meta platforms could be lost under end-to-end encryption, the equivalent of 14 million reports. The Information Commissioner's Office has intervened in the end-to-end encryption debates, arguing that encryption serves as an important role in safeguarding privacy and online safety, and actually strengthens children's online safety by not allowing criminals and abusers to send them harmful content or access their pictures or location. The ICO's Executive Director sought to reassure child rights campaigners by arguing accessing encrypted content was not the only way to catch abusers. Other methods used by law enforcement include infiltrating abuse rings, listening to reports from children targeted by abusers, and using evidence from convicted abusers. Paul Bernal also has made an interjection on his blog, arguing in favour of end-to-end encryption, and finding that the slogan, no place to hide, fundamentally is fundamentally flawed, as it assumes hiding is a bad thing. All of us need somewhere to hide online, and especially those of us who are more weak and vulnerable. Obviously, there's a lot of privacy concerns in this. I just wondered where you guys landed on each side of the debate and whether you had any comments to make. The difficulty is, of course, with um, with this is that no one in their right minds uh, is going to support or would want to support child abusers. And the very idea that uh, child abusers are using technology to their own ends Um, is abhorrent and of course everyone's immediate uh, reaction would be of course to support an end-to-end encryption however the difficulty is if you end this encryption system you're ending it for everything for everyone and uh, that includes everything from everyday private communications the difficulty is we can't just um, bring an end to uh, encryption that would only allow us to use the tool of accessing information um, for the right reasons. Yeah, if these social media companies were to build in a back door, that back door could be used for good, but also for bad. It would uh, allow everybody uh, to get in who had access uh, to that. And that's the danger that we need to bear in mind. It's always important with this to to keep a broad view on on uh, what we're actually doing and whether we might end up doing more harm than good. And of course, the other point is that, yes, we want to bring an end to child abuse, but this of itself is not going to bring an end to child abuse. Child abusers will find other ways to do things. Um, that also needs to be borne in mind as well. I agree with Paul. 
Um, it's a popular refrain that we've heard from the Conservative Party over the last decade or so, that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And it keeps popping up in different contexts, whether they're talking about uh, counter-terrorism provisions, and that stretches back indeed to the, the new Labour administration, um, whether you're talking about uh, so-called illegal immigration, um, or whether you're talking about crimes committed online, including, uh, of course, uh, abuse of children. Um, it is a, a politically lazy argument to say you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, because it, it pushes the buttons of people who go, well, yeah, so we want to stop abuse, as Paul rightly says. Um, but uh, it's fundamentally untrue. You have everything to fear from uh, granting the state uh, access to private communications. Um, and, and what we're talking about here, the proposal to do away with end-to-end -end encryption by building in back doors that the state can access, is no different from the kind of surveillance measures we see in parts of the world that are regularly criticized for their human rights abuses. We're going to be talking about the Winter Olympics in China later. China has this sort of total web surveillance. Uh, and make no mistake, what is being proposed here is uh, not very far away from that. It's not far removed from that kind of surveillance. Um, there is an awful lot of good that comes out of end-to-end -end encryption. Um, and as Paul Bernal points out on his blog, part of that is, uh, 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 is that it can be used to protect children, protect them from predators, protect them from surveillance. As well as, of course, giving them, giving all of us, um, private spaces in which to develop as human beings. Um, and I'll close with this observation that as digital communication has become so much more vital in the last 18 months when we've been going through this pandemic and we've been cut off from people, the protection of those means of communication the ability to conduct relationships privately, to conduct communication privately, to develop in a safe private space has become all the more vital to us as individuals. Uh, and uh, you know, this is, to deploy another very lazy political metaphor, a very slippery slope. I think that would be a good time to move straight into the uh, Olympics discussion then, um, as you, you kind of neatly segued into it there, Tom. Olympic athletes participating in the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games have been provided with burner phones from their own governments amid surveillance concerns about China. Some athletes have been advised to leave laptops and phones at home, while others, including athletes from Canada, Germany, Great Britain and the US, are being provided with temporary devices. Fears are said to come stem from the Chinese Communist Party's known penchant for cyber espionage and a desire to control online content. A Chinese embassy spokesperson reassured the Axios blog that China's relevant laws and regulations protect citizens' personal data, and this is true for every athlete who comes to the Beijing Games. However, privacy experts have warned that the Chinese laws aren't meant to protect citizens and visitors from cyber intrusions from the Chinese Communist Party itself. Um, there's also been some concerns about 
political protests at the Games and what could happen to athletes who decide to make a stand there. Uh, is it worth just maybe mentioning this is the Games are due to start this weekend? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, um, it is, of course, uh, the Lunar New Year, so uh, a very happy New Year to all those celebrating, and long uh, si to our Chinese listeners. Um, there are a lot of concerns that Western countries have about the level of surveillance that goes on in China and about uh, exposing citizens uh, from the West to uh, the, the, the surveillance that goes on there. Um, so I'm not surprised that uh, athletes have been recommended to use less sophisticated telephones that are less susceptible to uh, the sorts of surveillance measures that we've seen in recent years, often ones that use apps on, on the phones um, uh, where, or, or, or where malware is downloaded forcefully, forcibly through email or uh, instant messaging. Um, older style so-called burner phones, uh, non-smartphones are, are less susceptible. So um, I'm not really surprised that the uh, recommendation uh, to use them. Um, I, of more concern from my perspective uh, is what we have heard in terms of reports of warnings being sent out by by officials from the Chinese government um, to athletes not to engage in political protests that would uh, fall foul of uh, Chinese censorship laws, laws against um, criticizing the, the government, what we would call sedition. Um, because it's been made um, quite clear that uh, the Chinese government will not um, grant ex exemptions from those laws to people who simply be, for being athletes at the games, um, that uh, they will enforce the law as they would against um, a, a Chinese citizen. Um, and so athletes are being discouraged from speaking up for, for example, uh, the Uyghur Muslims, um, or for LGBTQ plus rights, um, things that, that, that exercise a lot of opinion and strong feeling in the West, um, but which uh, evoke a very uh, different response from the Chinese government. Um, I think that is the more worrisome um, threat to uh, athletes who, who might fall foul of those rules than, than, than the surveillance while we're on the topic of um, repercussions for criticising the governments, we have an update on Julian Assange, who has been granted permission to appeal to the UK Supreme Court against the decision given in December 2021 to extradite him to the US. The appeal relates to a point of law, and the Supreme Court is being asked to decide in what circumstances can an appellate court receive assurances from a requesting state which were not before the court of first instance in extradition proceedings. Just to finish up UK court hearings, uh, on the 26th of January 2022, there was a directions hearing in the case of the Attorney General versus the BBC. The Attorney General is seeking an injunction to stop the BBC from airing a programme which would allegedly identify an intelligence operative working overseas counsel for the Attorney General told the court that this is a breach of confidence case 
where there is a dispute between the parties as to whether certain information can be published. The BBC argues that it is in the public interest that the information is published. Directions were given for a hearing on the 1st and 2nd of March 2022, with part of the hearing being in private. Uh, so we'll, of course, keep listeners updated on that one as well. Moving over to the US, where Netflix is facing a defamation claim against chess grandmaster Nonna Grap Brindishvili for a false statement made in the fictional series The Queen's Gambit, which stated that Gap Brindishvili never faced men. The Georgian chess player said that this has tarnished her personal and professional reputation in the eyes of millions of viewers worldwide. Netflix argued that no reasonable viewer would have understood the line to convey a statement of fact due to the series being an entirely fictional work. In refusing Netflix's application to have the case thrown out, the court found that there was no evidence precluding defamation claims for a portrayal of real persons in otherwise fictional works. Anyone have any comments on this case? Yeah, so this uh, this TV series was um, uh, based on the book uh, of the same name by Walter Tevez, uh, known for The Hustler and The Colour of Money, which was subsequently uh, made into a film. I think this kind of case is interesting for, for two reasons uh, for us. First of all, uh, it's interesting to make the comparison uh, with uh, the American standard in defamation cases, which we know is higher than the UK standard, uh, in that uh, malice plays a greater part in determining cases in the US than it does in the UK. Um, but I also think it's interesting to see whether this uh, claim that we make, that it's actually harder to bring a claim in the US than in the UK, actually remains true. And so this kind of case can be useful uh, for that purpose, to sort of think through uh, whether this would in fact get past uh, Section 1 of uh, the Defamation Act 2013. Can we say that this is sufficiently seriously harmful to the individual uh, to warrant uh, a defamation claim? I'd have thought it probably would pass Section 1 on the basis of the number of viewers. Um, the Queen's Gambit was an enormously popular... Uh, was an enormously popular series, um, which was certainly uh, number one in Netflix's streaming charts in the UK for quite some time when it first aired. Um, and uh, well, Netflix is notoriously cagey about its viewing figures, but it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that it has had millions of views. Um, and so it is um, quite likely that people will have heard this. Um, and whilst not everyone who watches The Queen's Gambit will know who is being referred to or will assume that people being referred to are necessarily um, real, uh, I should imagine that, that there are some who, who will have, have done that and will have assumed that you know, this was a person who was a, a less good chess player, a less tested chess player than she really was. Um, in the United States, the, the, the standard for malice, as, as Paul rightly uh, mentions, is on paper at least higher than the, the threshold in the UK, in that it's necessary for a public figure to bring a claim, um, for that public figure to demonstrate either uh, that the defendant knew the statement was false or uh, or, or, or that the uh, defendant showed reckless disregard for the truth. And I think this is where there's going to be a difficulty for Netflix because it is very straightforward to look up 
uh, Gaprandishvili's record of playing games. Uh, they're all logged. There are chess databases available online that log everybody's games going back at least 100 years. All professional chess players have all their games logged. Um, and, and it's perfectly straightforward to work out that she did face male opponents. Um, to not do that when you have a production budget the size of Netflix's, um, I would have thought it wouldn't be too difficult to persuade a jury that that amounted to reckless disregard for the truth. Um, so, I mean, there, there, there is a bigger question of whether this is defamatory to say of a person that they didn't play men. But the argument she's making is that it tarnishes her professional reputation, um, makes her appear to be uh, a, a lesser standard of professional chess player than she uh, really was and is. Um, uh, and so it will be interesting to see how this goes forward. I, I, I'm not surprised that it survived the motion to dismiss. I I, I feel like the um, accusation that she didn't play men is serious enough, given the timing. I mean, she would have been one of the few female chess players of her generation, and that would have been a massive part of her professional reputation, the fact that she was one of the few women. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm not surprised that that would be seen as seriously harmful. I should say that I have, having not read the, I haven't read the Walter Tevez book, um, and I don't know whether that line appears in the book. Um, it may well be that it was simply added by uh, Netflix and, and, and the the screenwriter for the adaptation. Um, it's, it is a throwaway line that appears in the final episode, um, so I don't know exactly where that uh, comment originates. All right, uh, one final thing I want to cover today, and that is the um, reports of the legendary quarterback Tom Brady's retirement, which turned out to be false. Um, ESPN has come under fire, particularly for being one of the first of the major media outlets to report on it. Um, And Brady then made statements saying that he's not even close to making a decision on retirement. ESPN stood by its reporting, adding that Brady wanted to make the announcement on his own terms. Uh, But Tom, you've got uh, some thoughts on why this is an example of pretty shoddy journalism. Well, yes, I think it's... um... I think it's worrying, and if if it is as I uh, I'm afraid I start I suspect it is emblematic of a uh, a widespread approach to journalism at the moment, then I think it is it is deeply problematic. So I, I saw this story at the weekend when it was uh, broken on uh, Sky Sports News, um, which I just happened to have on in the background at the time, and suddenly breaking news, big yellow writing came across the screen: Tom Brady retires greatest quarterback of all time um and it, it was reported not just uh, by sky sports news also espn as you say on uh, the guardian bbc new york times a lot of places uh, reported it and it turns out that the report was based on uh, a tweet put out by a health and well-being company that brady is associated with um which suggested he was retiring um it's a tweet that subsequently has been deleted um and it just i think indicates to me that you have major news outlets willing uh, and eager to break news based on simply reporting a tweet um not based on sourcing this story properly not based on getting in touch with brady or brady's agent or his management or indeed his team, 
but just going, oh, there's a tweet from a company that says Brady's retiring, ergo Brady must be retiring, so we must report it. That is not good journalism. That is a million miles from good journalism. You know, journalists are taught to source stories properly, or at least they used to be taught to source stories properly. Um, and I've suspected that there are shoddy practices in sports reporting for some time. Um, I mean, one only has to look at the mad, rampant reports of impending transfers in uh, football around the transfer deadlines twice a year to to see that there are a lot of things that are not well sourced because they turn out to be not true. And I suspect that there's an awful lot of uh, stories that are simply an agent has said this to a reporter and it has immediately been reported as so-and-so player is going to such and such a team. Um, but this one to me was, was, was just taking the biscuit because once upon a time, to say of a person that they were retiring from their profession could cause significant financial harm in the same way as saying that a you know, that a particular shop was closed on a certain day might prevent people from um, fr- fr- from going to trade with that shop. And it's that, that sort of activity is a classic instance of malicious falsehood. And there are cases, you can go back 100, 150 years in English malicious falsehood law, where you'd see cases of that sort, falsely claiming that a person was no longer engaged in their line of work. Um, now, I don't think that, uh, you know, a... a, a, a a few hours worth of reporting that Tom Brady is retired is going to do much financial harm to Tom Brady. But um, it's of the order of an error that uh, once upon a time could have been very serious in other circumstances could have been very serious. And it all stems from as far as I can see, pretty shocking journalism. Um, so I hope that, that, you know, the, 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 journalists, uh, wise up to that and stop just reporting tweets as if they were facts. I think it also says something about the uh, news culture in a, in a more general sense that um, the pace at which news can be transmitted has created a demand that news will be transmitted that fast it, in line with the technology. And uh, what we don't always take into account is the human factor and the human factor here that causes uh, the problem is the sort of circularity, the reinforcement that happens by one group that is trusted repeating something which everyone else then assumes, well, because they've said it, then that's good enough for me that it is true. Um, and so, you know, once things are said by, for example, the Associated Press or Reuters, the more general groups that disseminate information quickly, you can see how it how it gets out there. But you can also see how lives can be destroyed by that kind of rush to publish. Um, now, here, there are no serious consequences, as Thomas said, or at least we, we hope not. But in other circumstances, yeah, there can be very serious circumstances and the, the rush to publish something shocking, something exciting, um, something sensational, uh, that, that furore over publishing what turns out to be a falsehood is never, ever matched by the rush to publish the truth, which amounts to a correction. Um, 
these are uh, sadly this is sadly the the age that we live in um and um we we see it in this instance uh, we also see it of course we saw it yesterday with Boris Johnson claiming that uh, Sir Keir Starmer failed to uh, prosecute uh, Jimmy Savile when he had the chance uh, and Nadine Norris doubled down on that by um by saying well the, the prime minister only ever tells the truth uh, if uh, I think she was joking. She must have been joking. Um, but that kind of information said in that context will be believed by people who should know better. Uh, and so I don't know where I'm going with this. But no, it's, it's a good point about just the, the spread of lies, I guess, and the fact that we have the ability now to reach huge amounts of audiences without fact-checking anything. Um, and it's scary when that kind of power gets wielded in Parliament. I think that's a good place to end. Uh, thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for joining me to for your cutting analysis, as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. <laughs> uh, and uh, as ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye. Just a quick note for listeners, after we recorded this, Tom Brady announced that he is in fact retiring, um, but we thought that the point stands with regard to shoddy journalism from reporting tweets, and so we've left that segment in, but we wanted to update you so that we weren't uh, contributing to the kind of shoddy journalism that we criticised in this episode.